Welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. So our guest today, Tim Howell, has one of the most adrenaline-filled histories from all of our interviews. Tim is wildlife guided in Africa and then went on to join the Royal Marines. And it was there as a commando that he developed his mental and physical robustness. He became a mountain leader and has gone on to achieve so much more. Using this love and passion for the mountains and climbing, Tim did his first base jump in France 2013. Tim puts his goals out there for everyone to see, with one big one being the first to climb and then jump the classic six north faces of the Alps, which he's nearly completed at time of recording. Having now left the Royal Marines to pursue this, Tim's now free to pursue this and his career full-time and bases himself out of a perfect location for it, Switzerland. Something that really strikes me is just how calculated and safe Tim is with the dangerous sport that is base jumping. Researching Tim for the interview, I was met with countless articles where within them he was making repeated calls to reschedule the jump. Through video footage and clear words, it's obvious that none of that was to do with fear, other than of course the fear of injury. Tim is clearly able to step outside of any ego he has and desire to chase the adrenaline and make the sensible call. And that same call has allowed him to do over 700 jumps and still going. Tim clearly has a passion for the mountains and he expresses this from deep within. And it's something that we discussed in the interview with Lotta Hintzer as well, the mountain climber, that uh, as a child when he was skiing, he just wanted to climb without the ski lifts. And uh, maybe it's uh, something that we can all connect with. With traveling from a young age, mountaineering background, and base jumping from Ben Nevis to Greenland to Vietnam, I am so sure you're going to love this interview, so let's get into it. Hold on, is that Tim about to jump? Chest straps, pin check. Three, two, one, see ya! So, Tim, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, all good. Yeah, it's been a bit of a relaxing week for me, so it's uh, yeah, perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's just dive straight into the first question then. So um, starting with the obvious, starting right at your first exposure to it in a magazine and your first sighting in Thailand, what is it about base jumping that keeps you going? Uh, I think for anything, anything that I do, it's, it's always a challenge um, and being able to get the experience and the skill set to mitigate any risk, you know, to be able to pull something off, not by the skin of your teeth, but enough margin for error to be able to go, oh, let's do that again. That was, and that's, I suppose, why I've, you know, coming up to 800 jumps now. So it's, yeah, I mean, some, some people... Yeah, it, it is, but it isn't, you know, there's quite a few of my friends who have got, you know, thousands of jumps. Um, but for me, I find the exploratory sort of jumping um, my sort of niche, you know, like it, it took me two trips to go to Vietnam to get a fourth, one 40 second flight. You know, that was probably a month in Vietnam for one flight when I could have just been doing 10 jumps a day, you know, down, down the road where they've got a gondola. So it's, uh, yeah. for me, it's all about those special jumps. And going right back to the beginning, what was your outdoor experience like growing up? Um, yeah, very uh, adventurous, I'd say. Um, I've definitely got my dad to thank for that. Um, 
he's uh, he comes from a military background as well. So, you know, we we go for long bike rides and end up bivying out under the stars. And I don't know, there's examples of like there'd be scaffolding on the house, and my dad would say, "I bet you could go from that end of the scaffolding to that end, you know, on the rooftop." Um, so like clambering across the the rooftop tiles from one chimney to another. No way. Yeah, it was just growing up with with risk, but calculated risk. You know, I think that was that's the important thing, and that's what I've definitely taken to, to what I do now. So you didn't raise your reckless then? No, I think if he did, it would have a knock-on effect to what I do now, and you know, I, I probably wouldn't last very long <laughs> doing what I do. Yeah, I mean, coming up to 800 jumps and no real injuries, so. It's um, what I'm what I'm doing so far has been working out. I mean, did your mum's exposure um, with her career, did that increase and play anything on your love for travel at all? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we took we made the most of uh, staff travel tickets from a really young age. I'd, I'd travel with my mum all across the world. She worked for British Airways. Yes, yeah, she, she worked, worked as a cabin crew for British Airways. And um, and a lot of people weren't really using the the staff ticket back then uh, you know this was 20 years ago but it meant i could fly to new york for a weekend um thailand for four days and we'd go because it was so affordable and, and possible you know and, and from a young age i'd be sleeping in the in the bunk beds in the tail of the plane or you know making a some, sometimes i remember going to um australia on the jump seat you know the fold-up seat that they used just to take off the landing so it was, I don't know, I don't know how long the flight is, what, 15 hours or whatever, just on this fold-up seat. But it, for me, it was, yeah, just the, the passion of traveling, you know, that, that made it worth it. <laughs> very, very jealous, but not yeah. for myself, but also for <laughs> my daughter, who uh, <laughs> I'd love to give that to her. Yeah, no, I, I feel very fortunate with those, those sort of experiences, and I've definitely got my parents to thank for that. Yeah, absolutely. And skipping forward a little bit further now, so what skills and lessons do you take from the military and also uh, your military mountaineering into mountaineering and base jumping? So the military mountaineering is quite different. It, it's just a, a means to get to where you need to go. Um, so uh, being an ML, being a mountain leader in the Royal Marines uh, means you're normally part of a reconnaissance force. And being a reconnaissance force, um, you need to be able to operate in any environment, whether that's the Arctic, the jungle, the desert. Um, so that's where the, the sort of mountaineering comes into play and the, the ski touring and um, ice climbing and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a minor role that they, they play. So I've, I've been climbing for 15 years now in, in all disciplines. So it's not really the, the technical aspect that the Royal Marines taught me, but it's definitely the, the mental aspect that, that I took away from my, my time in the Marines. Well, we had a, a previous guest, Tim Taylor, on the show, and he's a, um, a Royal Marines reservist. And he said, it, he said that what he learned from the military was how to suffer and enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not sure, if you'd sure agree about that. enjoying it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like there's, there's times while I was serving, but climbing as a civilian, or time since, you know, even the other week when I was stuck in a storm in the top of um, Petit Drew, um, where you you know that things could go wrong, 
but at the time it's just you being uncomfortable super wet there's it's a thunderstorm you've got to carry on climbing your hands are bleeding you run out of food and water but you know that that won't last it's you know it's just a period of time and you mm. crack on um and then there's no other option but to crack on so it's that's that's definitely something that i yeah i, I learned from the military is to, to suffer but carry on i think so uh your dad like you said was an officer with the paratroopers which is uh currently seen as uh, or commonly seen as competing with the royal oh, marines sure. so yeah. i was wondering what was it that steered you towards the royal marines um so I mean, my uncle's in the Royal Marines as well, and I definitely wanted to be in the Royal Marines or the paratroopers, but I, I thought the Royal Marines, I, I didn't join as an officer, I joined as, as a recruit, and I think the, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble with. <laughs> Go for it. I no, no, no. <laughs> No, I, I just, just two minutes of bleep. <laughs> yeah, not not probably even harder hitting than uh, than cursing. But um, no, I, I just think the the type of blokes that um, that I was in training with in the Marines are the the type of people that I I wanted to to be around and spend my career with, you know. And yeah, I mean there there was not not friction, but there was always banter between uh, my dad and I, and and in training that so the the maroon. Um, beret is obviously the colours of the, of the paratroopers, and I got my dad a, uh, a maroon T-shirt, and it said, "God was a paratrooper because he failed the commando test." Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I made him wear that a few times before that went in the bin. <laughs> yeah, did it did it strengthen your relationship between between the two of you? Do you think? A bit of being in the military, I mean, a hundred hundred percent. Yeah, there's you know, he, I'm sure he was very proud, and he he you know, in conversation, he would give me tips especially in training and and actually some of them were they paid off like it was i remember this one time on a on a survival exercise um where we'd been yomping for about i think it was about 10 15 kilometers with a heavy packs on and he um he said if you go around the corner and they say yeah take your your bergens off put them in the in the lorries and you think that's all over never think it's all over so everyone is putting their bags in yes the exercise finished the lorries drive off and they say you've got another 10 kilometers to go now and they're just testing you and my and my my dad i remember my dad telling me this story and a bunch of people gave up they said no i can't go on um and the lorries were just waiting half a mile around the corner so it's uh, it was a real test of yeah just endurance i suppose but it was just your your willingness to carry on so yeah maybe i was cheating there maybe maybe (laughs) maybe i remember the story and actually it was a little bit of cheating and if it helps with your comment earlier i listened to um fox's podcast um and when he uh interviews jay morton they were talking about selection and and they take the mick out of them themselves they say paratroopers are a bit more dirty sort of won't shower for a few a few days and then uh meanwhile the marines are like three o'clock hitting all their admin ready (laughs) It's a different caliber of man. <laughs> no, you know, I've, I've got friends that are paratroopers. I've also worked with, with ex-paras. I was listening to a podcast you were on talking about being in tricky situations. And uh, we talk about mindset and overcoming things quite regularly on the podcast. Mm. 
So when it comes to challenging situations, what is your actual thought process in the moment? So for me, when I come up with a, with a project or an idea that's, that's obviously quite challenging for me, it's always breaking it down to, I, I call them like stepping stones. You know, yeah. If my end goal is flying a really technical line off a really, really high altitude peak, first of all, I need to do lower altitude peaks. I need to do easier wingsuit lines. I need to then combine them. And then, do you know what I mean? There's, there's lots of stepping stones that then take you on this journey to, to completing your end goal. Um, mm. And even that end goal, once you've done that, then that often for me leads to something else. You know, so each stepping stone just continues onto something bigger and bigger. So yeah, I mean, it's probably cliche, but really just breaking it down to challenge, to, um, to bite sized chunks. And I, I think that's also really good for your, for, for the mental goal, the mental, um, games that you can play on yourself, you know, once you know you can do, whether it's, it's going for a 10k run, you know, doing a 5k run in the morning and a 5k in the afternoon or, you know, just building it up step by step to be able to finish yeah. your end goal. And th- does that transfer as well to when you're climbing and things go wrong? Do you find um, yourself sort of breaking things down or does some sort of training and instinct okay, kick in? Okay. So that, that's more like, so if something goes wrong, like in the moment or, or something like that. So do, do you do you kind of do the same thing then? Or is it more just everything just sort of clicks into place? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, another phrase from the from the Marines and another sort of mental game that I've, I've taken away from them is improvise, adapt and overcome. And that is, yeah. is so true but for everything, you know, for dealing with COVID, for dealing with traveling you know something goes wrong it really is all about improvise adapt and overcome um mm. logistically you know on on climbs or in terms of gear in terms of being able to physically climb the route it's yeah it's um it's all a little game you can shift things around and <laughs> make things work yeah. for you how does jumping multiple times a day somewhere established compare with opening up a brand new jump yeah i mean i've, I've thought quite a quite often about the idea of doing something new, doing something that somebody hasn't done before. And that for me is just so much more nerve wracking and you have to be so much more uh, sure of yourself because until it's done, you don't know it's possible. I think Vietnam was the first time I really did something big that was new, uh, something that was for me, I was quite proud of. For me, I was quite happy with the outcome. But the level of research you put into that was yeah. was admirable, I think. Thanks, man. I mean, to begin looking back at it now, and actually, as soon as I did it, it was actually not that hard of a wingsuit jump in terms of technical ability to be able to do that jump. Um, but because I'd never done something like that before, it was I really wanted to be a hundred percent sure with with everything. So yeah, but so the the story around that is even my my wife and I we always go uh, abroad for Christmas and we try and find. For her, she loves the ocean, so we, yeah. we try and find somewhere that's got nice beaches and, and diving or whatever. Um, I love climbing. Well, we, we both climb, so it's yeah. got a nice climbing area, and then preferably somewhere to jump off. And I found this picture researching uh, northern Vietnam of this huge cliff. So yeah, there's there's pretty much there's four things that you need to do to to find a new wingsuit jump. First of all, you need the initial, uh, what we call a rock drop, the initial vertical wall, which needs to be 140 meters or more. And then after that initial vertical wall, you need the terrain underneath it to be uh, steep enough to 
to fly over. Then you need somewhere to land, always helpful. Um, and then the last one, overall, you need enough height between exit and landing for it to be a worthwhile flight, you know. So, you know, a 10 second flight, you, you might as well not wingsuit it, you know. Um, so to find all these things, all these variables is actually potentially quite rare to find. So we found a picture of this, this one cliff in Vietnam. And although um, you could just see a picture of the cliff and there's obviously no reference for height, it was worth spending a lot of time researching. And something so remote as, as this place that was pretty much on the Chinese border, there wasn't many photos of it or people who had been there or Google imagery, satellite imagery wasn't high quality enough to actually figure out you know, how high it was or the difference between landing and exit or, or even if there was a landing. But we had enough information to think it's worth the trip. So we went out there and it took us from landing at the airport, it took us two days to get up to this location through a whole combination of night trains, night buses, tuk-tuk, taxis, all sorts. It was yeah. <laughs> Scooters. The last, the last uh, three miles were on scooters. But um, yeah, we finally got there, and we we spent two days getting down to the uh, landing point, figuring out if there was a landing, measuring the cliff, going up to the exit point on the cliff, measuring it all. And when it was time to go, the the rangers came in for a whole week, so it was um, it was a write off. But fortunately, uh, Red Bull Red Bulletin gave me a chance to to visit again. They commissioned the project. Um, so we went back the year after and got one jump in before the weather came in again. So yeah, I mean, for, for that, that for me was, was probably the most amount of effort that's ever gone into a jump. <laughs> Even standing at the exit point the second year, you know, in a wingsuit, geared up, good to go, looking at this huge drop in front of me, it turned out to be 220 meters vertical. It was, it was still so, so challenging for me to, to, to do it knowing that nobody else has done it before you know it's and then as soon as it has been done it's, it's easy it's like you know that that sort of part of your brain that's saying this might not work is kind of gone and it's gone for everyone else if other people want to jump it as well they know it's been jumped so they know it's possible and i think that's that's the hard bit of doing something for the first time is is knowing whether it's possible or not but what if yeah what if yeah. you've missed something in the math or something exactly exactly yeah. And, and part of the maths were uh, you, you fly over this track and the track has um, cables above it. So it was trying to figure out whether I'd be able to clear, clear these electric, electricity cables. But it yeah, was, you don't yeah. want to get tangled in those. No, you don't want to get fried <laughs> on the jump. But, uh, yeah. And then on top of it, it was actually a really, really nice scenic jump. You know, it wasn't just jumping for the sake of it to say it was the first one. It was actually really top quality jump. And I actually, I read that article on the Red Bulletin um, about that jump. So this question comes from that. But mm. how often do you get people seeing you jump and or land and have to explain to them what you're doing? <laughs> I mean, this, it was, uh, it was the, Hmong, the Hmong people. And there's a local sort of, I don't know, indigenous people of that area. Uh, very secluded from the rest of the, the society, you know. It was Hajang um, province as well, wasn't Hajang, it? Hajang, right yeah, yeah. yeah. And they had obviously never seen anything like it before. So, yeah, just just all these little kids just smiling from ear to ear. These this old man with you know the shovel doing his his daily work, and he was trying to explain to me like 
like with his hands. It was, yeah. It, I mean, it, generally speaking, even in the UK, it's, it's pretty much near enough only good uh, response from, from the public that see it. You know? well, Especially we, when they when you react with them and they see that it's not just a crazy stunt. They can see that you're very meticulous with the planning and gearing up and everything. Well, it's, it's a nice segue that you mentioned that because I was going to ask you, what do you think of news articles that often imply base jumpers to be reckless adrenaline junkies? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it might be the case in a few <laughs> in a few, uh, few people, but, <laughs> you know, when, when, when my stuff goes to the media, I always explain how much time and dedication and planning has gone into these jumps. And I, I feel it's a shame when... You know, accidents happen. Not all the time. They happen. But, yeah. but when those accidents make it into the news, they don't give the, the sport a, um, a good name, you know, because it's, it's often all that they, all that they, the public see. So it's, it's really good to get good positive imagery from base jumping and, and explain to people, you know, that the process, it isn't just like a one-off stunt that we've just decided to pick up a parachute and jump off a cliff. It's, years and years and years and years of, of training before yeah. we even start base jumping. So. I mean, if you looked at Formula One, for instance, imagine you heard nothing about Formula One in the news, but mm-hmm. only when they crash. Yeah. And you'd be like, oh, Formula One, why are they still doing it? They're always crashing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a great example, because that, that's actually an example I use quite a bit, because you oh, don't... Nice. <laughs> yeah, it literally <laughs> is. It, you don't just get into a Formula One car no. and start. So that's, that's the same with base jumping. You don't just go base jumping. There's you know, for Formula One, there's go-karts and, and all this mm. previous less risky, you know, that's where you build your skills. And that's the same for, for base jumping. Is you, you build your skills in skydiving where you've got a reserve. You've got a very planned, meticulous drop zone that has a lot of rules and a lot of step-by-step guidelines. And there's, there's no shortcuts and no, no way around the rules, you know. So that's, that's where you learn yeah. and then take it to base jumping. You said it's 200, uh, well, I mean, it's not like you've made up. Um, I've read <laughs> in, yeah, in the research, 200 skydives before you can start doing base jumping. Yeah, I mean, there is no governing body for base jumping. So there's nothing stopping you picking up a base jig and jumping off a cliff. Kind of like <laughs> climbing. But that's that's the beauty of it, is the, is the freedom. You know, if you think you're ready, you can go for it. But the thing that's stopping you doing it is the high risk. There's some real serious consequences if you if you if you muck it up. So it's it's only in your interest to to get the best training you you can get before you start base jumping. So jumping back to favorite locations. Ooh, uh, jumping I, back. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'd love to say it was. <laughs> I think it was way more subconscious than, than me being smart. Um. um so uh, Greenland another favorite trip of yours oh, and i like yeah. it because it's such a contrast to the jungles of vietnam to to greenland but um but what for you st- stood out from this trip but for me i i call greenland my first real expedition you know mm. i think it's great that everyone has their own um interpretation of what an adventure is or what an expedition is and for some people climbing up ben nevis could be an expedition you know but but for me that that was my first like proper expedition because it was uh, remote, self-sustained with objectives. 
And those are kind of the three things that makes an expedition to me. And and that's what made it so special. You know, it took 14 days in sailboat to get there. There, all all our supplies there. We were fishing for Arctic char to to eat every day. Um, wow. We weren't. We were busy jumping off cliffs, but the skipper yeah. <laughs> was doing that for us. Yeah, shout the, the skipper. skipper. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> lovely man. And yeah, and our objective was to jump, try and find new jumps in the area, but also jump um, cliffs that had previously been done by by uh, previous expeditions. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Just the landscape and the and the jumps itself, and just the the crew. It was yeah, a really good experience. Starting to move away from jumping now a little bit. When you're not launching yourself off of mountains, what do you usually like to get up to? I, I mean, jumping and climbing are my, are my main things. And if yeah. I'm not doing them, I'm, I'm planning the next jump or the next climb. As, <laughs> I was going to say, are you just eating and sleeping if you're not doing that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, man. It's you know, I've got notebooks and pads all around me of the next jumps and, and wow. trying to figure out. Um, where to go and yeah lots of googling <laughs> google imagery and stuff and, and and asking people you know that's that's the beauty of the internet you'll, you'll see a picture on instagram of somebody's taking on an expedition and i'll get in communication with them and say you know where did you take this picture did you see this cliff was that landing and, and they're thinking what what are you planning yeah a lot of the jumps have been like that been because i've seen one picture and it's led me to the thousands and thousands of miles away halfway up uh, a mountain in Africa. It's just been that one picture that took me there. It's not. It's not a bad way to live, is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes. It's not all. Oh, there. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, there's YouTube, that quote but... that I see over in America quite a bit, which is, um, uh, you don't compare your highlights to someone else's. But um, no, don't compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlights. Yeah. And there's that whole idea of, you know, you know, I never said you're so lucky to do what you do because um, that's. An annoying phrase um, for anyone who does amazing things because you're not lucky. Like one, I interviewed someone called John Gupta, and he, uh, yeah, he I, said, no, John, yeah, and he said, um, he said, no one came to him in Bristol and said, congratulations, you've been randomly selected to have a house with Snowden in view and yeah. have your own mountain expedition company. <laughs> did did have, have you um, read anything that I've I've said about luck? Because that is. I haven't come across that yet. No, I, there was a few articles on the, on the Yotna. Uh, yeah. Is it Yotna? Yotna, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you I mean, I've, I've got so much to say about luck, and, and what you've just said is absolutely spot on. It's, yeah. It's, it's got no place. You know, people will say, oh, good luck for that marathon, as if to say luck is only going to get you through that marathon. No, it's it's your hard hard training and your, and your yeah. will and your dedication is going to get you through, not luck. And action is going to change yeah, things, whether, yeah, whether that yeah. be your housing situation or pursuing your, your yeah, yeah action is going to do it. Yeah, I did, um, I, I led or I helped lead a, a mountain training for some real bigwigs in the military a couple of years ago. And it was it was just taking them on a route in the Scottish uh, Highlands. And I was talking to one of them about all the experiences that I've had in the military. And he said, oh, you've had a really lucky career. I said, no, everything that I've done is because I've put hard work into it. And I've got to the places where I wanted to be. I said, yeah, good, good answer. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I think some people fall into common phrases without putting yeah. thought behind it. You get some people who, who do just go, oh, you know, the universe has been great to you. <laughs> yeah. Which, I, uh, I don't want to delve that's... into too much. <laughs> but 
Oh, no, no. <laughs> you're completely you're right. It's it's people that don't necessarily delve into to what they're saying, but I I really do. I really like to to think about you know these phrases and what I'm saying because it, I think it translates into and you learn about what you're doing, risk and, and stuff like that. If, if you're not just yeah. dismissing everything with luck, you know. Yeah, precisely. And there's it all stems for me from that uh, that quote. Um, I can't remember who says it. But it says he says it's funny. The harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as if it's just. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, moving moving away from uh, just jumping for a moment, let's talk travel for. So, this last year alone, you have been to and jumped in Malawi, Scotland, Mozambique, Oman, Thailand, Switzerland, England, South Africa, and France. And that is more time away than most people. So how would you find it going from country to country back to back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of these places, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate, not luck, fortunate <laughs> <laughs> to, be, uh, to be based in Switzerland, which is obviously on the doorstep of a lot of European countries. Also, when I, when I do find work, so the, I had some work in Mozambique for a production company. Um, and it just so happened that they also wanted me to jump from the mountain. And if, if they didn't, I'd try and make it happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, Mozambique was close to the border of Malawi. So I hopped over the border and extended my stay in Malawi. So it's, for me, it's just making the most of, of where I am in the world. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to be in the Alps as it is, which, which is where I've always wanted to be based. And um, yeah, it's definitely made things easier and great great training venue absolutely it's interesting you go on that topic as well because i i just i'm going back through as we record i'm going back through all of the posts on my website and putting an actual article to it and uh the one i've done today that the person i interviewed just made good use of negative time she was at a conference yeah. and then so she just thought i'm just gonna go to yosemite for the day and uh and she did it and it's it's great to see more people doing that because if you really want something, you will find time. You, you will see that there's loads of time in what you're doing to, yeah. to go out and do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's great that you're just hopping over borders while you're there because <laughs> rather than getting back and going, oh, should have gone to Blawi. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's making the most of it, you know. It really is, no matter where you are, what you're doing. Yeah. Like, like even, for example, my friend was saying, like, people who say they don't have enough time in the day to, to do a workout, to, you know, exercise. Yeah. He said, you put your kettle on, how many press-ups can you get done while you're waiting for your kettle to boil? You know, it's yeah. just making the most of your free time. Yeah, exactly. I um, I do this thing sometimes. I like gaming. And so mm. um, um, so I, I like I like this game called Rainbow Six Siege. And often when you're out, you're out for the rest of the round. And so uh, over the lockdown, I just press-ups and planks in yeah. those moments. There we go. So I was, like, I, was, I was like, okay, we're out. We have to wait for the next one. I just like see, like, just like bash out, like, say, 15, because yeah. I die quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> don't want yeah. to push it too much. That's like in training. The guys that were the worst at um, drill got the most press up. So the guys that <laughs> were actually the worst at drill were actually ended up being the fittest in the end. So has there been anywhere in all those travels? I mean, those places were just, just the last year. Has there. Have you ever been anywhere that's really made you feel at home, somewhere you just fell in love with? I mean, I've I've fallen in love with a lot of places, but home's a weird one for me. I, I think I can only really feel at home in the UK. But I mean, South Africa, I, was, I, 
I, I lived in South Africa for two years, and that place is, yeah, it's really special for me. It's, it's got a lot to offer um, for, for all the adventures that I do, but just, just the people and the, and the landscape and the, the animals and the bush. It's, yeah, it's um, yeah, pretty amazing place for me. And um, I, I took my wife, I proposed to my wife out there a couple of years mm. ago, and she said the same. She was just just absolutely loved it. Out of all the places that we've been to, she said that's the, the one place she just wants to keep on going back to. We're on a quote frenzy. Uh, this is this was said about um, an episode I listened to from the Amateur Traveller podcast, and they were talking about um, talking about climbing Kilimanjaro. She said about Tanzania. She said that you you come for the wildlife and you return for the people. There's so many countries that apply for that. You might go for the base jumping, um, yeah. or you go for the wildlife guiding. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got some great friends, um, some guys that I I learnt the trade with as a, as a guide. Yeah, I, I definitely definitely stays in my mind those those people, even though it's, it's quite hard to contact them stuck in the bush. <laughs> no. Yeah. I've got one last question before we start to wrap up. When you do 700 plus jumps, it is hard to keep track of them all. But if you could relive one moment in your uh, in your traveling and jumping career, which would that be? Um, so you say it's it's hard to keep track of them. Well, I've got a, a logbook with every single one. Yeah. Of them, so it's, uh, I, I love keeping tabs on them. There's one. There's, there's a lot of like amazing jumps for different reasons but there's one that always sticks in my mind which is um, the last jump in Greenland and it sticks in my mind for a lot of different reasons but I, I jumped um, into the sun that never sets it was literally on the horizon and it's like that for forever yeah it was incredible and then I canopy opened I flew around this tower and then two whales were jumping out of the water and it was Ooh. you know it's, I think it's one of those things that you can't plan that makes it so amazing you know, it's if I've, I've jumped into things like the Grand Canyon and Half Dome, but you, you expect what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You know, this, the scenery is amazing. But with these whales, it was just completely unexpected, which I think is what made it so, so special. But also what made that, that jump really stand out was um, it was definitely a mistake to jump. I landed in a, in a bit of a boulder field, but it was just me being caught up in the uh, in the moment of I really want to do this last jump. The scene itself is amazing, with, even without the, the the whales, and it's um, and I was annoyed with myself on landing. Like I, I left a dent in my helmet and it's uh, cut cut the tip of my finger off. So I, so I said earlier I never really had an injury. I, I I never had something that stopped me from doing a base jump. You know the next minute, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was definitely stood out, one of the standout jumps. It was, it was pretty, pretty stunning. So I've got some wrap-up questions then before, before we head off for the night. Cool. If you had guaranteed perfect conditions right now, where would you go to jump? Oh, probably back to the Matterhorn. Just, uh, just being able to it's, – it's just looming there, isn't it? You know, I, I yeah. tried it two weeks ago, got winded out the exit. So instead of moving on to the next project, it's really nice just to, to tick, <laughs> tick some of those things off. And Matterhorn was actually the video that I saw you shared on Facebook uh, earlier this week. And yeah. you, you just, just casually, no big deal, just walking on the top of the ridge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... And it sparked my vertigo off, like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a stunning summit ridge. It's, it's very cool. But, um, it's, it's often the, I mean, that, that is a very simple walk literally a, a walk on the summit 
but it's often the the videos that people can relate to that are are the most popular. Uh, I, I I just like the fact that with the fisheye lens, you could clearly see the Italian side and the Swiss side. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to fool anyone and make make everyone think that we're on some sort of. But when you look horizontally, you can see, and it's still like flipping steep. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, if yeah, you fall down, there's no point getting angry at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not going to stop for a long time if you slip. So, on your way out to these expeditions, what are three non-negotiable tracks playing? So, so generally, on a, on an exit point, if I am, I don't really listen to, to music like on a hike or anything. But it's it, it will always be calm, calm and music. I never want my heart beating at a thousand miles an hour. So, um, but then um, trips to to Vietnam, I downloaded a few albums, and that was. Fantagram and Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes, which is a bit of both. It's like some hardcore stuff and some chilled stuff. So yeah, those, those are two bands that I definitely enjoy. If you weren't jumping, what would you be doing instead? Climbing. Like, uh, to me, climbing sustainable. Base jumping it isn't really sustainable. Hmm. Um, and if I had to choose one or the other, it, it would be climbing. But for the, for the foreseeable future, I'm going to be jumping as much as I can. Yeah, and, cl- and climbing as much as I can, but you know, as as we get older and things change, maybe our our opinions and what we want to do changes as well. But for now, I want to be jumping forever. Well, you've got Steve Swenson, who's uh, a little bit um, on the. I hope you're not listening to this, Steve. I know, ready to retire <laughs> age, <laughs> like in in the workplace. But he's still killing it. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. He did a first ascent in Linksard, didn't he? And in, over in the Karakoram. So yeah, quite yeah. I guess and, well, I mean, and likewise, I mean, it works with age. For sure. Yeah. Like it's, um, and I, I was jumping with um, a friend of mine, um, 63 years old, uh, jumping in the Dolomites the other day. Um, Eric Jones was jumping into the 70s, I think. Um, wow. For his 80th birthday, he asked me to do a, um, to take him for a base jump. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think he opened up the Eiger on his 60th birthday. Uh, he, op- he was the first person to jump yeah. from the Eiger. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's possible. Perfect. And then last question is, where can we keep updated on your adventures? Yeah, um, website, Instagram, and Facebook, all, all pretty much uh, Tim Howe Adventure, um, timhowadventure.com or Tim Howe North Base. But um, any any of those would come up. Yeah, oh, and I'll link them all in the uh, in the description. Thanks very much. Man. But uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. So, what did you think? Have any of you skydived before? Have any of you base jumped? Get in touch, btmtravelpod at gmail.com. I'm saving up for my skydive license as well. I just, after doing that tandem charity skydive, I just can't get enough of it. I'm still living off the adrenaline months later. So, get in touch if you're thinking of doing it too, or if you enjoyed the episode, let me know what you think. Dave Town got in touch on Facebook. He asked about my episode one on the road trip to Switzerland, he asked about the itinerary, so I will modify the article on the website to detail the days I had and where I traveled to so that you can enter it on your own Google Maps as well if you want to, so keep an eye out for that. Also, remember to get in touch with any travel stories and adventure stories of your own too. Check out the Patreon site so that you can support the podcast or check out some official merch if you just want to directly get yourself a travel mug or a face mask or a t-shirt or a jumper go ahead and check that out too. That'll all be on the website. Check out the social links too. Instagram I'm I'm most active on, so you'll see most of the updates on there too in any offers I get through. 
so do check that out as well. But I hope you have a wonderful day, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.